0: Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy is a 10-episode fictional coming-of-age audio drama. Start with episode one and listen in sequence. If you love it, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or join our email list for exclusive content, free tracks, and episode announcements. Happy listening! Sick Picnic Media presents Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy, a novella in sound and color, written and narrated by Matt Geiler. Episode 6, Halftime. High school football games in Waverly are more important than church. Nobody would ever utter such a blasphemous notion out loud, but in communities of this size, the math is simple, and the numbers reveal the true allegiance of the people's hearts and minds. My hometown had barely 1,800 people in it, but 11 churches, each one boasting its own tiny troop of disciples whose devotion somehow prevented them from ever acknowledging this fact. Nobody from St. Mark's Lutheran would ever be found darkening the doors of Little Hope Baptist, whose 15 or so members, all of whom looked to be the very biblical age of about 120, wouldn't dream of attending a cookout at Bethany Covenant, even though they had two or three of them a month, and they were open to the public. And although the congregants of the First United Methodist Church regarded the parishioners of Holy Family with some suspicion, both of those assemblies would swear up and down that Lifegate revelation couldn't be a real church at all because it was located in a storefront at the professional plaza sandwiched between the four-star drug and the trackside bar but regardless of how each of these houses of the lord apprehended the great mystery every single one of their members worshipped together side by side every friday night in the fall Fully illuminated and indiscriminately clad in the sickening burgundy of the hometown Vikings, everyone, even the unwashed, converted to partake in the fervent revival beneath a tent of blazing lights. This would have been strange enough given the denominational differences that prevailed across town, but stranger still was everybody's zealousness about the football team itself which in the hallowed season of 1980 won the only championship in anything in the whole 75-year history of the school, and then promptly returned to its yearly display of almost breathtaking mediocrity. Despite the team winning exactly three games in the seven years since those halcyon days, people around town always seemed to truly believe that whatever year it was, was going to be THE year. And usually, something incredible did happen every year on the football field. The year after the championship, Waverly set the state record for fumbles lost in a game with 15. During the 1983 season, three different quarterbacks combined to throw 36 interceptions, also a state record. But last season, things had reached an entirely new level of ineptitude when Gerald Ozencup a junior running back who presented as a 35-year-old man with his bushy mustache and slightly receding hairline, got confused during a game against an unranked Catholic school and took an option pitch 73 yards the wrong way with 14 seconds left, scoring the winning touchdown for the other team. None of this did anything to dissuade the devoted. Gerald and the rest of the Vikings' hapless gladiators were still celebrated throughout the town at pregame rallies in the high school gym and dinners at the VFW. I didn't understand how men who had fought in actual wars could get so excited about Gerald Ozencup's prospects for making all-conference when they would have shot him for running 73 yards in the wrong direction away from a battle. But that's what a football game is in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. An act of theater in which old men worship the ghosts of their own youth and feel their breath quicken again. And everyone else follows along, posturing and praising in pursuit of a pulse. In that way, these games are signs of life. Momentary bonfires on the boundless dark prairie, sending up a signal that a small forgotten place has remembered itself. My mother arrived into the circus-like religious electricity of the pregame already mired in the chaos of my brother's birthday celebration. Patrick and a few of his friends had had cake and presents out at the farm, and this was the second half of his party. My brother had somehow convinced my mom to let him invite eight friends, five more than I was ever allowed, and which had ensured that the first half of the party would become a total calamity. Patrick's friends were all right individually and in small doses, but when they combined their chemical composition became highly combustible and highly idiotic, even for fifth graders. As we were eating the cake, for no apparent reason and with no warning, Gary Croker blew frosting he'd stored up in his cheeks out through a straw, covering Wilbur Haskell and most of our dinner table in a light blue paste that took my mom an hour to clean up. But before she could do that, she had to physically sandwich herself in between Wilbur and Gary to break up Wilbur's attempt to sit on and crush Gary in retaliation for bathing him in frosting. When she'd managed to separate them, she told me to take everybody outside to play until we were ready to leave for the game. That's when things fermented into a full-blown fiasco. I tried to get everybody into a football game in the front yard, but no one was interested. Instead, my brother's coterie of rowdies drifted around the back of our barn, where they quickly devised an amusement infinitely more stupid and dangerous. There was a back section of the barn that for some reason my dad hadn't finished off. Maybe he had run out of sighting. Or lost interest. In any case, the place where Patrick's friends were now gathered was an opening in the north wall, where there was only framing on the lower level and open air on the upper level. From the edge of the second floor, which was basically a patchwork of plywood and particle board sheets, you could almost touch the branches of a tremendous black walnut tree that had been growing there for probably a hundred years. Beneath the tree was a massive pile of dirt that had been accumulating for almost a decade, the product of my dad's excavations and construction work on and around the barn. And now it had reached a height irresistible to a pack of wild ten-year-old boys. High enough that you could jump down out of the barn opening onto it without getting seriously hurt, but still low enough to provide the thrill and excitement of taking chances with your own mortality, which is exactly what Patrick and his buddies had decided to do while we were waiting for my mom. Of course, Gary Croker was the first to make an attempt. He had that relentless, almost disturbing need to prove himself that some kids get when their parents start them out upside down in life and don't seem too interested in doing much more after that. For starters, they'd named him Gary, but spelled it G-E-R-R-Y, like the British version of Jerry. Like Jerry and the Pacemakers, who were just as lame as their idea for naming their son. So basically, from kindergarten on, Gary was constantly having to correct people and explain his name. Not a great start. On top of that, his dad, Mort Croker, was kind of a town-wide embarrassment routinely showing up to Gary's games shirtless in frayed cut-off jean shorts with a half-smoked cigarette hanging off his bottom lip beneath his perpetually wet mustache, which was always glistening from whatever he happened to be drinking out of a plastic apple juice jug he carried around with him. There was a running bet among the other parents as to whether it was vodka and orange juice or just straight-up gin. Gary's mom, Trinella, seemed to do little else besides accompanying Mort around Waverly and not speaking except to periodically apologize for weird and off putting things he would blurt out. You could see Gary tense up when they'd roll in late to his games, and he'd wince painfully in between pitches as his dad, hanging on the chain link fence by the dugout and refusing to sit in the stands, yelled out slurred encouragements, most often, Throw him the dark one, Gare! It was no wonder the kid wanted to fly so badly. I'm going to get a running start so I jump far enough to slide down the other side, he announced from the edge of the barn. I bet I can touch that branch on the way down. Maybe just aim for the front, cautioned my brother. Just do a normal jump, I groaned, trying my best to dampen his enthusiasm on purpose. I can totally get that branch on my way down, he continued. From where I was standing on the ground, he looked like an imbecilic explorer making a proclamation about taking the Northwest Passage, who had no earthly idea about how the planet was actually put together. Gary, just do a regular jump, Patrick insisted. Everybody's waiting. Get back a little bit and give me some room, Gary ordered the others. I gotta get up to speed. He said this last part almost to himself, like he was contemplating entering orbit. I chuckled out loud. The way Gary had lowered himself into a crouch to start his approach reminded me of one of those Roadrunner cartoons where Wiley Coyote is about to take off in hot pursuit, but is pulverized by a falling boulder right as he takes his first step. What are you laughing at? Gary demanded, still hunched down with his arms splayed back like the tiny wings of a flightless bird. (laughs) I'm sorry, I apologized sarcastically. I thought you mentioned getting up to speed, so I assumed you were joking. Patrick and the rest of his friends burst into laughter at this, causing Gary's determined grimace to change into an irritated scowl. Shut up, Freddy! he wailed, tightening even more before the jump. The tone of his high-pitched shouting indicated things had moved into a personal place for Gary Croker. The first time he had yelled at me to shut up with that exact same shriek was during one of Patrick's fourth-grade baseball games. I had been conscripted by Rita Rosenboom, the Waverly Parks and Rec Manager, to announce the younger kids' games from the brand-new concession stand at the Main Diamond. There was an upstairs room with a bay window and a microphone hooked up to a loudspeaker, and I was tasked with calling these games, but also making things entertaining, to quote Rita Rosenboom. As Gary took the mound to pitch for my brother's team one day, I announced him as Scary Gary Croker. I honestly meant it in the sense of, this kid's heat should frighten you if you're at the plate, but Gary didn't take it that way, and as the crowd erupted in laughter, he screamed Shut up, Freddy! to me right in the middle of warm-ups. Following this latest entreaty for me to shut up, everybody fell silent and watched as Gary took off for the edge of the upstairs barn floor. It was actually a really good jump. Honestly, too good, because Gary got enough height and distance that instead of going straight down on the dirt pile, he rammed his shoulder into one of the larger branches, which jolted him backward while tilting his face up to the sky, ripped his shirt sleeve, and deposited him with a thud on his back on top of the pile. You ruined it, Freddy! Now Gary was screaming for real, out of actual pain. It didn't look like he landed very hard, but tears were pouring out of him as he writhed around in the dirt. I almost cleared it and you ruined it! I would have cleared it, you jerk! While Patrick and Wilbur and the rest of them came rushing down out of the barn, I bolted for the house. Gary Croker jumped out of the barn and hurt himself on the dirt pile. I heaved breathlessly as I burst through the front door. What? My mom yelled with the precise exasperation of a woman who not moments ago finished cleaning up this same kid's spit-wadded cake frosting from all over her table and carpet. Even as she popped up from the floor like she was spring-loaded and surged past me out of the house, it was clear from the long, exhausted shape of her face that her power supply for the day was almost depleted. When she got to the back of the barn, with me trailing quickly behind, Gary Croker was still on top of the pile, curled up in the fetal position and covered in dirt and leaves and old walnut shells, with one hand clutching his shoulder and the other squeezing his posterior. My stomach started to sink, and I could feel an anxious tingling wave of heat appear on my neck and race down my back, disappearing and resurfacing as the tempo of my heartbeat picked up i had an almost panicky feeling that now we weren't going to be able to go to the game at all and that jill would realize she'd made a huge mistake in picking me to go with her this in turn made me angry at gary croker for being such a dummy and angry at patrick for even inviting him but there was nothing to do except swallow hard and feel my insides get hotter and hotter At some point, I realized that the only thing I could hear was the chorus of cicadas and that my right leg was quivering impatiently. Tell me what happened, my mother calmly instructed Gary, gracefully climbing up the pile and kneeling over him. My mom's voice always had the same sound at times like this, clear and calm without a trace of harshness, soft and strong in the same breath. It reminded me of a chapel organ's evenly calibrated and soothing vibrations. I hit the tree branch when I jumped, Gary managed. My mother gently lifted his hand away from his shoulder, revealing a not insignificant scratch on his arm underneath the tear in his sleeve. It wasn't a cut, and you couldn't really say it was a wound but it was long enough and had scraped away enough skin that tiny droplets of blood were beginning to emerge through the thin, tender tissue. It's going to be okay, Gary. Let's get you into the house and wash this up and get you a bandage. The seriousness of Gary's situation became clear when my mom tried to turn him off his side and help him up. He let out a guttural sob and sounded like he was going to hyperventilate. She stopped moving him, and we could all see that there was a small piece of glass lodged in the back pocket of his Levi's, a saturated red circle around the base, suggesting it had pierced the skin. It was obviously deep enough in that Gary couldn't move around without a lot of pain. Freddie, go into the house and get my sewing scissors and a warm wash rag from the kitchen, my mom instructed while sizing up Gary's accidental glass impalement. Patrick, go to the bathroom and get my tweezers and the hydrogen peroxide and cotton balls from under the sink and bring them down to the couch. Patrick and I were running full speed back to the house before my mom had finished speaking. When I got to the deck, I glanced back toward the barn and saw that she had maneuvered Gary off of the dirt pile and was carrying him across the yard, having somehow slung him over her shoulder. Once she had deposited Gary on our living room couch, my mother began delicately tending to his injuries, first cutting the denim away around the glass and lifting the tiny shard out. Fortunately for Gary, his wounded buttock bled far in excess of the size of the damage, which turned out to be only a tiny puncture that my mom disinfected and bandaged in under a couple of minutes. After she had washed and dressed the scrape on his shoulder, she helped him sit back up and put an arm around him. Are you okay? Gary nodded while he wiped away the last of his tears. When I see your mom at the game, I'll tell her I'm stitching your shirt up. You can borrow one of Patrick's for tonight. Your jeans are probably a lost cause, so you can have a pair of his, and I'll give your mom some money to go get some new ones, okay? Then Gary did something none of us expected. Just when my mother was about to get up, he leaned over and gave her a hug. It seemed to take her by surprise, but she instantly relaxed into it and patted him gently on the back, bending her head almost underneath his chin to make sure he was all right and drawing a smile out of him. In this way, my mother was giving Gary the same care and attention she would have given me or Patrick had we also just fallen out of the sky onto a heap of glass-infused dirt clods. And this was something that never failed to amaze me about her. There were a lot of other parents, even of some of my closest friends, Who cared less for other people's kids than their own sometimes a lot less maybe it had something to do with my mom being a teacher but the whole time we were growing up i never saw her withhold any love or affection from a child just because they weren't her own and believe me kids can tell with gary's medical emergency behind us and his spirits restored Five minutes later, my mother had somehow managed to fit all ten kids into the minivan, and we were hurtling down the gravel roads toward town. The earlier, untamed joviality of Patrick and his friends had returned, and the ride into Waverly quickly became as raucous as the cake-eating had been. At one point, Wilbur said, Hey Gary, I didn't know you were gonna end up with glass in your ass and you would have thought it was the second coming of Lenny Bruce, the way everybody laughed so loud and violently. It actually made my ears hurt. I saw my mom's mouth drop open in a silent display of mortification. If I had said something like that, she would have shut it down immediately by saying, Freddy, I have had just about enough of that nastiness. But she didn't say anything. Maybe she figured Wilbur had been through enough and was entitled to getting one last snub in. It turned out to be one of the all-time great snubs for sure. For almost the next two years, Gary's nickname was Glass Ass among Patrick's friends. He eventually got so sick of it that he found an entirely new group of people to hang out with and didn't really talk to my brother or Wilbur until they were seniors in high school, at which point Wilbur closed the circle of slow comedy by routinely asking, Hey, Gary! Remember when we used to call you glass ass? Hilarious. By the time we all poured through the Northeast doors into the high school commons, my mom's will to reign in the insanity had evaporated. While she paid for everybody's ticket, Patrick and his friends sprinted over to the concession stand and each procured super ropes, three foot lengths of cherry licorice with which they promptly began whipping each other. I might have tried to help my mother and corral them myself, but I was caught inside my own feedback loop. The clamor of Waverlyites hurrying out to the field, an audible noise of the crowd and the marching band mixing into a gently thumping din that tumified in time with my own quickening pulse. I was standing motionless in the middle of the streams of people and had just shut my eyes to take in a deep breath when I felt my mom's hand on my shoulder. "'Freddie, did you hear me?' "'Sorry,' I murmured as I looked up to her. I was just breathing for a minute. I asked if you were going to sit with us in the bleachers. I immediately felt a wash of deep purple guilt flood over me. I knew she was beyond tired and ready to drop.' The thought of her having to watch over Patrick and his wild friends flogging each other with their licorice whips while I went off by myself to meet up with Jill made me feel like I was abandoning her. My very next thought was, where is dad? Why isn't he here to help? But in the same instant I thought that, I also knew how terrified my mom had to be of him. And then I realized just how trapped she must have felt all the time by everything and I felt guilty about that, too. Would you rather sit with your friends down by the West End? I felt like if I admitted this, I would somehow break her heart. So I lied. Actually, can I go back out to the car? I asked. I forgot that I left a tape I brought that I was supposed to give to Brian. She looked puzzled, but not hurt as she handed me her keys. Just make sure you lock up when you're done, and don't leave your ticket in the car, okay? she said you can come and find us whenever the truth was that i had no intention of sitting with my friends or connecting with brian but i had brought a tape my copy of the beach boys today was tucked inside the waist of my jeans and hidden underneath my sweatshirt i had been listening almost exclusively to side two ever since i'd cemented plans for this rendezvous with lisa at my locker two days ago Now, I was determined to go out to the van and drench myself in the harmonies of the slow songs, trying to fathom the unfathomable until it was time to meet up with Jill. I climbed into the front passenger seat, turned the ignition without starting the van to get battery power, and fast-forwarded the cassette to the beginning of Please Let Me Wonder. The stair step of three Fender bass notes immediately plunged me into a lush garden bed of soothing harmonies. I reclined the seat as far back as it could go into the parking lot darkness, put my hands behind my head, and closed my eyes. Now here we are together. This would have been worth waiting forever. Please let me wonder if I've been the one you love. Please let me wonder if I'm who you're dreaming of. Please let me wonder. The rich, flowering harmonies seemed to unfold out of the speakers in a cascade that felt like it was pulling me under into a bottomless sea of feathers. There was a vivid flash of Jill's face in my mind that materialized in intense color before disappearing into a vast, warm, borderless blanket of sound. My body seemed to disassociate with my limbs. My very sense of being began to dissolve in the tingling morass of pleasant, pulsing sonic gel. I rewound it and listened to it five or six times to make sure I drowned in it. I did this with all of these side two ballads. Next, the tape-saturated doo-wop vocals of I'm So Young took over and I started to imagine Jill and I as the torturously doomed lovers in its fateful lyrics. I have a girlfriend. She says I'm her only one. We want to get married, but we're so young. So young. Can't marry no one. Then the rich tapestry of counterpoint voices in Kiss Me Baby, rising and falling, their pendulum-like tension lulling me into the helpless, drunken swirl of the politics of love, filling me with the desperation of apologizing to Jill for a fight we hadn't even had yet. Can't remember what we fought about. Late, late last night, we said it was over. But I remember when we thought it out. We both had a broken heart. Kiss me, baby. Love to hold you. As that track faded out, I could hear the faint update from the announcer's booth above the field. And with a minute and a half to go in the second quarter, the Vikes trailed by only two touchdowns. Like it was some sort of miracle. Halftime couldn't come fast enough. Finally, perfectly timed to be the last song I heard before heading back into the game to take my long walk into the unknown. She Knows Me Too Well emerged in brilliant duophonic stereo. Brian Wilson's most heartbreaking falsetto performance rose out of the dashboard and hovered over me like the patron saint of unrequited longing. Sometimes I have a weird way of showing my love, and I always expect her to know what I'm thinking of. But she knows me, knows me so well, that she can tell I really love her the soaring aching melody of the lead vocal kept ascending until I felt like my heart was going to burst my chest was swelling and I felt its vital fibers beginning to pull apart to lay my very soul bare and defenseless in its cavity in the spaces between breaths snapshots of Jill flickered in and out of focus and I wondered if this same nightfall daydream was happening to her wherever she was waiting. As the last few seconds of the first half expired, I weaved in and out of the chaotic sea of bodies, swimming furiously against the current of fans surging toward the concession stand and the marching band making its way onto the field. The muffled thumps of the drumline basses coincided with my own pounding pulse and my feet hitting the cinder track to form an urgent rhythm section perfectly in time with my treble-heavy nervousness. I couldn't do anything about my nerves at this point, but I also didn't want to. My skin was bathed in a pleasant, grainy fuzz, like the resonant hum of an old amplifier that's accidentally been left on for hours. When it occurred to me that I could switch off this buzzing current by turning around and walking back the other way, I had arrived. The utility shed at the darkened west end of the field was an unpromising facade of rusted, corrugated tin with a ramshackle wood roof that housed track hurdles and pylons and equipment for the upkeep of the field, which was clearly seldom used. The word Vikings had been painted on the roof in an almost colorless maroon, the washed out peeling quality of the letters mirroring the resolve of the actual team like everything else in waverly it promised nothing extraordinary when i stepped cautiously around the back that promise was broken Gillian golightly was standing in the shed's violaceous shadow with one hand on her hip and the other hanging languidly at her side her middle slightly cocked to the right so that it gently forced her left leg outward. Her one-piece knit shirt dress, patterned in navy and white horizontal stripes and drawn in around her waist with a belt, looked clean and modern, even cloaked in the dark blue-gray umbra of the uninhabited end of the football field. And in the thickening dusk, I could easily see her immaculate teeth. She was smiling at me as though I'd just delivered her a present. I didn't know if you were going to make it or not. She giggled, comfortable and expansive in her shawl of diffused light. I I did, I stammered. I made it. Well, come over and stand by me. I did immediately as I was instructed and moved toward Jill like a priest approaches the altar or the cross, my head hanging reverently down, acknowledging the higher power, my careful steps conveying nothing less than humility. My drawing hand was shaking. How have you been? she asked, draping both arms over my shoulders and bringing me the rest of the way to her. I could smell her clean chocolate hair. Spearmint. Celeste. Well, I know we haven't been able to talk very much lately, I responded, as though we had talked at all since everything started at the pencil sharpener. I'm glad to talk to you now, Jill whispered, her nose an infinitesimal distance from mine. Before I could think of anything to say, and in the unmeasurable instant it takes for a breath to catch in your lungs, Jill's lips converged on mine in a glistening kiss. This would have been an occasion for celebration and release, except that I met her uninhibited ardor with an equal amount of unresponsive restraint, my lips forming a firm, unmoving line across my face. My mouth was as closed as Jill's was open. She drew back suddenly, but gently. Have you never French kissed before? She floated. Her eyes were positively gleaming. There was no trace of disappointment or the urge to hide that so often overtakes the embarrassed first brush strokes of the young. Instead, they flashed the excitement of discovering an unopened gift. Eager. Electric. No, I never have, I admitted. I think I would have been ashamed if Jill wasn't radiating simple, careless joy there in the shadows. Well, why don't I show you how to do it, she suggested. She moved in close again. Just open your lips a little bit, she breathed warmly. That way they'll fit with mine. I parted just slightly and instantly discovered she was right. The feeling of our mouths together was absolutely new a pleasant wetness like paint and water mixing. Flashes of orange and pink swirling and retreating, delicately fastening, affixing, receding, a fuse popping and fritzing while a dampened snare starts shuffling, supported by carillon and sleigh bells. Sweetness, sugar, the slightest sting as our lips separated, vinyl spinning lightheaded through static, still tasting, And wanting. Wow, Jill exhaled. I didn't know you were such a good kisser. Still re entering the atmosphere, I opened my eyes to find she'd reclaimed the same position as when I'd walked behind the shed. I didn't know you did, or that I was either, I burbled, my face awash in echoing triangle tings. I mean, I've never kissed anybody like that. Halftime was ending and the throng was returning to their seats, but Jill stood right where she was looking at me and smiling and shaking her head just a little. I couldn't tell if that meant she didn't want me to go or if she was just as in awe as I was about what had just happened. Maybe it was just a sense of surprise at how easily we made something cool together. I was about to say something like, I should get back to the game or... I should go, when she finally moved. She glided to my right shoulder and rested both hands on it, though she didn't completely stop. We should do that again, she intimated in a soft, low murmur as she passed. Again and again, I thought. Did you have a good time with your friends? My mom asked wearily as she shepherded Patrick and I to the van through the tumult of the parking lot. It was okay, I fibbed just sort of hanging out down by the band. I felt torn. I wanted to tell her that something unbelievably and earth-shatteringly good had just happened to me, because she was the person in my life I always told those things to. But I also felt that giving my mother this kind of news at the end of one more long day in an endless procession of long days would make her even sadder. On top of all of this, I just wanted to keep this one good thing to myself and let it secretly grow and blossom into my own private garden of delight, even though I knew in the end no one can keep anything so intense and so fleeting for themselves because things like glances and kisses are made of air and live on the wind. I feel bad for those kids, mom continued as she started the van. It can't be fun to lose that badly. It can if you're not playing and kissing Jillian Golightly at halftime, I thought, feeling selfish while I thought it. Can I put my tape in? I asked. Sure, Freddy. Just don't turn it up really loud, okay? I rewound side two of today and settled in for the ride back out to the farm. All my favorite parts of the ballads were now as fresh and sharp as Jill standing in the darkness eternally wed to flashpoint imagery from our cloak and dagger kissing. Monday morning, I walked up the front steps of the junior high, a convert. Anything I'd ever heard before about the Eagle Girl's morals or looseness or wildness left me for good. I don't think I ever totally believed the terrible assessments of Eagle itself, but none of that mattered at all now. I knew for sure that I was living in a different world because of that kiss. Something had fallen away, and something new had arisen in its place. I couldn't even say it felt like I had taken a step towards becoming a man, because that felt like a laughably small and irrelevant goal next to the possibility of Jillian Golightly and the way I had felt when she kissed me. I didn't know a good word for it, But it was the same feeling that I got when I would wash out an area of a painting with water, its volume pulling whatever pigment it touched completely away from the spot of its initial application, leaving for an instant a clear pool that's allowed a single defining breath before a new infusion of nearby paint rushes in with brilliant burgeoning coils. The feeling of expanding. The feeling of space to begin again. Jill had helped me take that sort of breath and now I was infused with something different and wider and surging through me in stereo. I didn't know what I was supposed to do next. I thought about going straight to Jill's locker to talk with her, but in my gut it didn't feel right. The truth was, I didn't really know Jill at all, but I felt that she came to you when she wanted, when she decided, and I was fine waiting. It gave me something unknowable to look forward to. Brian was still at his locker when I reached mine. So was an impish kid named Bryce Hermes, another friend of ours who, just like the messenger god of his namesake, was small, nimble, and whose eyes at all times flickered with mischief. Both of them were wearing jean jackets with the collars turned up. With their backs against their lockers, they looked cool and relaxed in command of both time and themselves as they conversed without looking at each other. They would get to class on their own time, with zero interruption of their calm, aloof flow. It was a self-possession I could never manage. But I was different now. Hey, Julius, said Bryce, sliding a greeting out effortlessly. How's it going, man? Pretty good. I returned, piling my bag and my jacket into my locker. I couldn't hold it in. I kissed Jill. This seemed to put him and Brian in gear. They both swiveled around and flanked me like I'd flipped a switch and they'd been activated. When? When? They demanded in unison. At the football game, at halftime. Where did you do it? Brian pressed. Did you guys sneak away? I already felt like I was telling them something I shouldn't. It felt like bragging. I had the fleeting thought that maybe the more I said about it, the less real it would become, fading with each retelling until it dissipated and vanished, becoming another flash in a parade of fleeting thoughts. Behind the shed, I answered, turning away to grab my books. Bryce turned me back to them with a hand on my shoulder. He was tiny but cool, so I let him. Did you french her? Hard question to answer. The short and real answer was yes. But I felt caught. Trapped. I knew this was one of those questions that wasn't just ask for the simple gathering of information. It was also a partially opened door. My response could open it fully and I could walk into the next chamber in the mystifying progression to becoming as cool as Brian and Bryce were. But my stomach didn't feel cool about telling them. It felt like I was sharing something before I was ready. Something that didn't entirely belong to me. But I did want to be cool. Yeah, we Frenched. I looked back and forth between them as they took it in. Broad smiles began to take form on both their faces, as though they were having the exact same thought at the exact same time. Brian laughed a little. No, you didn't, Bryce chortled. No way, Brian concurred. My mouth opened a little at their rebuke of the absolute truth I had just betrayed to them. But the first bell rang before I could get any words out. It was timed perfectly, and probably looked like the sound of the bell was coming out of my mouth and was my actual response. They began their calm, even glide toward the end of the hall. Yes, we did! I called out. We did French! This turned the heads of virtually every other kid passing by, creating a momentary teenage tunnel of judgment. A swelling tidal wave of embarrassment and vermilion and itchiness towering over me and setting my ears on fire. Brian and Bryce were at the end of that tunnel, looking back at me, smiling and shaking their heads. Like I said, I never could manage. I'm This episode of Lonely Boy is brought to you by Sick Picnic Media. To us, you're not just a listener. You're part of this journey now, too. For exclusive updates, sneak peeks, and maybe even a free track or two, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or sign up for our email list. Don't forget, we release new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms every Friday. Until next time, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's always a good time to imagine anything. Peace and much love. Please note, Lonely Boy is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2023, Sick Picnic Media. All rights reserved, including the right to reproduce, distribute, or transmit in any form or by any means. For information regarding
1: subsidiary rights, please contact Sick Picnic Media.